Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Russia's horrendous invasion of Ukraine is providing yet another reminder that when elephants fight, it's the grass that is trampled. We see that not just in the front page casualties, teenage soldiers dying fighting, civilian men, women, and children killed by dropping bombs, but also in the measures that we are told are meant to avert those harms, economic sanctions. Karee Peterson-Smith is the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. He joins us to talk about the problem with seeing sanctions as an alternative to war. Also on the show, in March of 2012, Amazon opened a department dedicated to ferreting out tax breaks and subsidies. In other words, the mega corporation making hundreds of billions of dollars in profit puts in time finding ways to avoid supporting the communities they operate in and to push local governments to divest money from education, housing, and health care to give to a company that doesn't need it. This March, the group Good Jobs First marked that anniversary with a call to end Amazon subsidies. We'll talk with the executive director of Good Jobs First, Greg Leroy. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The Russian elite can't stand the sanctions, crowed a recent piece in The Atlantic. The wine and protest from the country's oligarchs meant that the U.S. and European sanctions were, quote, working as intended to punish Russia's elites for supporting President Vladimir Putin, close quote. They won't starve, the story elaborated, but they, quote, will be unable to maintain their jet-setting luxury lifestyle, close quote. Meanwhile, CNBC viewers were told the West is trying to destroy Russia's economy, and analysts think it could succeed. That piece cited the French finance minister's statement that the aim of the latest round of sanctions was, quote, to cause the collapse of the Russian economy, close quote. So which is it? Inconvenience a few richy riches or bring a country of 145 million people to its knees? Or is there a secret way to immiserate a country without incurring grievous human harm? The current moment provides another chance to examine the role of economic sanctions in conflict. And here to help us think about that is Karee Peterson-Smith. He's the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. He joins us now by phone from Boston. Welcome back to Counterspin, Karee Peterson-Smith. I'm so grateful to be here, Jane. Well, thank you. Uh, Just like we're told by politicians and by media that weapons like bombs and drones are surgical and that they're targeted, we're also told that sanctions are carefully aimed to hurt only the powerful in order to influence them. Your recent writing engages that storyline because it just doesn't play out that way, does it? It doesn't. And I think that particularly with sanctions, they're not designed to play out that way. You know, when the Biden administration first 
was talking about doing sanctions on Russia, they simultaneously talked about targeting Putin and a few oligarchs, and they would use phrases like, to use their language, crippling sanctions. And as you said, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that this is targeted and specific and also talk about attacking the entire Russian economy, which the kind of sanctions that they have pursued intend to take out an economy. You know, when you when you cut the Russian economy out of the international banking system, for example, that's not just going to affect the billionaires, that's going to affect the whole population. And as we've seen, the ruble has been crashing. So that does affect the population. So this is the design. It's, it's how sanctions are intended. Well, and that's kind of the heart of your piece is the fact that sanctions are framed for kind of the public, the people who are going to be asked to support a particular invasion or a particular policy. Sanctions are framed as an alternative to war. And I hear you saying that's not just an imprecise, that's a wrong way to think about it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the first thing is that sanctions, their impact is devastating in ways that are at least similar and and often worse than armed combat. When we think about the sanctions that the U.S. imposed on Iraq in the 1990s, when we think about the decades-long U.S. embargo on Cuba, you know, these have had drastic impacts on the populations. When we think about the way that the Iranian population has been impacted right now and has been for years. The other thing, though, is that often, and actually in, in the three cases I just named, Iran, Iraq, and Cuba, the U.S. government deploying sanctions is not posing them as an alternative to military action. It actually combines them with military action. So we know that the U.S. embargo on Cuba has coincided with various attempts to overthrow the Cuban government since the Cuban Revolution. The sanctions on Iraq in the 1990s were bookended by U.S. invasions in 1991 and 2003. And then with Iran, the sanctions that have been imposed for several years, for for many years, coincide with all kinds of military pressure as well. And Trump was maybe the most honest about this. Folks will remember his maximum pressure regime, which was a combination of intense sanctions and parking aircraft carriers off the coast of Iran, threatening airstrikes and so on. So the actual practice is to really combine sanctions and combat or kind of armed force. They're really just tools in the same toolbox. When folks are transparent about it, they will say that sanctions are aimed at regime change. And that's what I often talk about as kind of accepting the U.S. legitimacy and changing the leadership of other countries is the price of admission to serious people conversation about geopolitics and news media, you know. Right. You don't have to concede the right of global powers like the U.S. to force regime change. But even beyond the illegitimacy of that goal, sanctions don't appear to work toward that end. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the first thing, what you said is so important because it's a pretty incredible thing that policymakers, U.S. officials and journalists in mainstream media talk openly and casually about how the intended impact of sanctions is to 
immiserate a country's population such that they overthrow the government in a way that is favorable to the United States. And if that isn't shocking, <laughs> then I ask people to consider what it would be like or how the U.S. government would react if that kind of conversation was happening casually in Moscow or in other countries that the U.S. deems as enemies. It's, it's, it's really incredible that U.S. officials demonize Putin for being undemocratic, which certainly <laughs> he's, he's undemocratic. Absolutely. But to support overthrowing the government and not just support it rhetorically, but pursue a policy whose thinly veiled objective is that it's a, it's a profoundly anti-democratic act. But as you say, as wrong as the intention is, it's also been ineffective. I mean, the U.S. has had sanctions on Cuba for how many decades? And that government remains in power. If anything, sanctions tend to strengthen the government that the U.S. is targeting. When the U.S. imposed sanctions on Iraq, for example, again, with the hope that that would lead to a coup within Iraq against Saddam Hussein's regime, because of the way that the Iraqi economy was devastated and the resulting limited access to things like food and medicine, it made Iraqis more dependent on the Iraqi government, actually. And so it strengthened that government for, for what it's worth. So, you know, the U.S. has no right anyway to meddle in the affairs of another country's society to target not only the country's population, but the most vulnerable people in the population, who's always the people who lose when the U.S. imposes sanctions. But also, for what it's worth, it's an ineffective approach. Well, U.S. media translating into what they imagine as news you can use for their U.S. audience. Uh, I saw an op-ed in the Detroit News by a former diplomat that said that the West needed to pull together to, quote, change Putin's path, close quote, and that, quote, that unity may well depend on the willingness of citizens of the West to suffer some economic costs of the broad economic sanctions. If inflation or gas prices go up and your 401k goes down as a result, give some thought to what democracy is worth to you close quote. Well, there's a lot going on there, obviously. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, that could take us all day. But let me just say, all right, let's think about what democracy means to us. And also international solidarity and human rights and justice and sustainability and peace. Let's think about those things. What could we be thinking about as other ways forward in what is admittedly a, a frightening time? Right. Well, I think that the way you're putting things in an international context, and I think that's extremely important because while U.S. officials and U.S. media cast countries that they deem as enemies as so foreign that you couldn't possibly relate to them, that there's something about Russia right. or something about Iran or something about China, there's something about the kind of internal nature of those societies. When we talk about Iran, it's, there's these Islamophobic tropes or something about those people that, you know, democracy is a problem. And the only solution is for democracy to be imposed by the United States and the West. And let's remind ourselves that among the many things happening in this country, we had an armed attack on the Capitol last year led by 
an outgoing president who refused to accept the election results. We have an open campaign by the Republican Party to, to, to pass laws to restrict democracy, democratic rights at the state level, targeting the people who are always targeted, black people, other people of color, immigrants, and so on. And so there are plenty of problems in terms of democratic rights here. And the notion that there's something exceptional about Russia that requires the U.S. to step in and do something, whereas this is a bastion of democracy, is false. And instead, I think that we, the people, you know, the ordinary people of this place and of the world need to ask what are we all doing within and across borders to make a more democratic world? I don't have to say I'm quite inspired by the people in Russia dissenting against this war in their thousands in cities across the country. They are pointing the way in terms of democracy, not only in Russia, but actually they're pointing the way for all of us. So what are we doing to build popular democracy, in other words? And the challenge of having more democratic societies is not a Russian challenge. It's not an Iranian challenge or a Chinese challenge. It's also a U.S. challenge. It is a challenge that we are facing all uh, across the world. And I think that it means a very different orientation that we have to have. All right, then. Well, we'll end there for now. We've been speaking with Curry Peterson-Smith. He's the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. And his article, Sanctions May Sound Nonviolent, But They Quietly Hurt the Most Vulnerable, can be found at truthout.org. Curry Peterson-Smith, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. It's, it's an honor. It's meaningful that Amazon's head, Jeff Bezos, also owns the Washington Post, and that the paper sometimes needs to be reminded to disclose that relationship to readers, as they run stories like, Jeff Bezos blasts into space on own rocket, best day ever, buttressed by op-eds like, the billionaire's space efforts may seem tone-deaf, but they're important milestones. The difficult reality is that Bezos doesn't need to outright own a news outlet to get coverage that undergirds his worldview. That, yes, it makes sense for a man to launch himself into space while some of his employees rely on public assistance to feed themselves and face every underhanded obstacle if they try to organize. And for a company that contains those contradictions to be labeled a wild economic success. Corporate news media aren't the first place to look for critical examinations of corporate capitalism, but they do present themselves as watchdogs of the public interest, and especially public spending, the cost to taxpayers. If that's true, a hard look at public subsidies to Amazon should be compelling stuff. Here to tell us about it is Greg Leroy, executive director of Good Jobs First, the group behind the End Amazon Subsidies campaign. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Greg Leroy. Thanks, Janine. Great to be with you. Well, simply enough, how do you describe to people the problem that the End Amazon Subsidies campaign is aimed at? I think everybody understands now that Amazon is kind of like metastasizing. Uh, (laughs) It's now the number one retailer by dollar volume in the United States. It leapfrogged Walmart a couple years ago. It's 
massively growing its warehouse network because pandemic deliveries surged. You know, they added hundreds of new warehouses during the pandemic and are still adding more. As if Amazon was ever a small company 20 years ago and might have needed some help. We've passed that Rubicon eons ago, right? This is a very aggressive, very rapidly growing company with lots of other tentacles that people don't know very much about, like cloud computing and fashion and movies and groceries, obviously, and many other things. But 10 years ago, this month, that marks the anniversary when the company basically set up a part of its public policy department charged with doing nothing but getting tax breaks because the company now was in a growth mode where it was going to have to build lots of warehouses you know, next to every major market with lots of prime households, and therefore they wanted to get paid to do that. And the company has pulled down more than $4.1 billion already, mostly for warehouses, sometimes for data centers and other things, and mostly warehouses all over the country. And we think that's nuts. It's money coming from public coffers to support what is not a fledgling, um, you know, struggling business that, <laughs> right. that requires that kind of lift. Well, tax avoidance is never an accident at Amazon, right? It's always been a right. conscious part of their model. We're talking now about moving from tax avoidance to subsidies, but from the get-go, they have not been interested in supporting the state or the community that they function within. That's exactly right. I mean, and it's not wrong to think of these economic development incentives or subsidies as another form of tax avoidance, because it means you're avoiding paying your property taxes for 10 or 20 years. It means you're not paying sales tax on your new building materials and machinery and equipment. It means you might be getting an income tax credit back because you invested X dollars or hired X people. So many of these deals involve multiple tax breaks of the normal kinds of taxes that that a family would pay otherwise, for example, and a company should pay. And then from the community, the government point of view, and I saw this, your colleague Kenneth Thomas quoted in this report in Vice, you know, it's worth just saying it out loud that the money that these communities are giving to Amazon, they could have put into education or health care or infrastructure or a million other things. That's exactly right. Education, obviously, is the most expensive local public service and is usually the biggest dollar loser. But everything that takes place at the local level, county public health programs, infrastructure, whether we're not going to reduce class size or have pre-kindergarten classes, all those things are affected by the amount of money available. And when when a big company comes in like Amazon and doesn't pay (laughs) much, if anything, toward all the growth that's being induced, guess who gets socked with lousier public services and higher taxes? And that's not even to mention the displacement or the harm to smaller and local businesses who just can't compete because they're paying their taxes. They're not getting the same kind of break necessarily that a, that a behemoth like Amazon is able to finagle. That's right. We've been saying for years, communities and states should not pay Amazon to arrive. It should be the other way around. Amazon should pay for the privilege of arriving because of the damage it's going to do to the local economies. Well, another aspect that should be catnip for reporters is the secretiveness. The Chicago Tribune ran a piece by Pat Garofalo from the American Economic Liberties Project Mm -hmm. about how, for instance, when Amazon got more than $100 million in tax breaks in 2020 from a village in Illinois, they demanded 
that the trustees wouldn't disclose that Amazon was behind the deal until the deal was basically a foregone conclusion. So the community didn't get to weigh in on this massive deal. I mean, what's up with that? Well, and a similar thing happened in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right next door, where in the first phase tax abatement, the council literally didn't know they were approving a property tax abatement for Amazon. And then on the second bite, by the time the company's name had come out, they voted it down, but the company stayed anyway, despite a threat. I think Amazon knows there's something wrong with this. They've gotten more secretive in recent years. We've noted that. Our tracker on our website has multiple lines now saying, you know, amount unknown or amount incomplete, because they're we're working very aggressively with public officials to try to cover up something. Maybe they feel dirty about it. I can only speculate. Well, and yeah, sunshine is always going to be the, the best disinfectant there. And, and just one note on that Chicago Tribune piece, Garofalo also noted that in the case he was talking about, funds came disproportionately from black neighborhoods. And that's another problem with these non-disclosure agreements. Different corporations can make different demands of different localities, and some might have to pay more than to host a facility than others, but they don't know that because it's all shrouded in secrecy. Yes, and Amazon, classic, you know, secretive whipsawing of communities against each other, putting public officials in what's known as a a prisoner's dilemma in game theory, where they don't know who they're competing against. They don't know if what the company is telling them is truthful about uh, bids from other places. And in the case Pat was talking about, this is a fantastic investigation by WBEZ Radio in Chicago and something called the Better Government Association, where they really dug in and found very sharp racial disparities between the company's treatment of different communities. A story on CBS Money Watch last year cited your work, Good Jobs First, and the critique of Amazon subsidies, and they had a counter, not much of one, but, you know, sort of halfway <laughs> through the piece, it says, quote, Amazon defends its use of subsidies, pointing to its hiring record and saying that the tax breaks are available to all companies, close quote. What do you say? You know, not wrong to say that too many of these tax breaks are available to too many companies. Mm-hmm. But that's a problem. That's a big structural recurring problem we've been screaming about for 20 years. That is, once you make a program like an abatement program basically a gimme on a, nearly an automatic or a tax increment financing district or an enterprise zone or you know, name your poison, then sure, rich companies with armies of consultants and accountants and tax experts are going to come in and grab every piece of money laying on the table they can. Yeah. That's the big structural problem with incentives these days. That doesn't make it a good thing, you know. Right. Um, exactly. It's not really that's a defense. <laughs> you know. And you know, I get in a cynical way why Amazon or any company wants to scrounge and scrape and withhold in order to hold on to every thin dime. What I don't understand is how anyone can make that part of their free enterprise fairy tale, you know, like like it's a mm-hmm. better mousetrap. And if you work real hard, you can do it, too. You know, that that's the part I object to. Amazon is doing something that really only Amazon can do at this point. I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't understand why this is presented as an example of capitalism working as it should. You know, someone got a great idea and was able right. to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, you know, then they get to launch themselves into space. Yeah, I mean, I think if you read the comment threads on some of these articles, there certainly are some people that say, like, what are you bellyaching for? You know, this is this is capitalism. Everybody does it. But I also think it suggests that capitalism is kind of fragile. I mean, you look at developers who always expect 
outbreaks of, of many different kinds, not just retail developers. And you ask yourself, like, if these things just weren't legal, if they expected to pay, you know, full freight for coming in, they would still do it, right? The markets are still there. The spending power is still there. The jobs are st- still need to be housed, whatever the project is. Right. We've allowed companies to just assume they're not going to pay to arrive. Yeah. And I think that's a real weakness in both public policy but also corporate mentality. And haven't there been instances where communities have said, you know, they think Amazon would have located the warehouse there for basic economic reasons, even without the subsidy? So it was, you know, not just not necessary to go into Amazon's coffers, but they had reasons to locate there outside of that. Oh, we have a great deal of evidence. We have an interactive story map on our website where we've updated it with all the new pandemic warehouses. And the recurring theme is proximity to affluent zip codes with lots of prime households, although not in the prime households because land's so expensive, you know, two or three ramps out on the on the highway, near an airport, near a railhead, near a truck depot, and in a warehouse district close to affluent zip codes. It's really predictable where they're going to go. Well, just finally, there are communities that push back that don't see Amazon as a gift from the gods arriving in their <laughs> in their town, you know, and who actually resisted and have done so successfully. And we, we didn't even touch on the fact that Amazon is doing this around the world. We're not just talking mm-hmm. about the United States. They're getting subsidies in every country they can. But also around the world, folks are, are resisting it. It's true. I mean, uh, this new damning findings by Reuters about their behavior toward third-party vendors in India that just uh, spawned the the letter from five members of Congress uh, uh, to the Department of Justice asking them to look at Amazon's potential lying to Congress about their behavior toward third-party vendors. You're right. This is a global story. All right, then. We've been speaking with Greg Leroy. He's executive director at the group Good Jobs First. You can find their work, including around ending Amazon subsidies, online at goodjobsfirst.org. Greg Leroy, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. That's also the place to learn about our newsletter extra or to sign up for our Action Alert Network. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.